Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Welcome to a commercial-free, fast-charging, awesome, amazing episode of Thriving Entrepreneur, where today we're going to talk about the human impact. How can we as humans make impact on other humans? Human impact is something that is so important. We are hardwired to make the impact that we were meant to make in this world and to be impacted by the others that we come in contact with in this world. And I have three amazing guests for you today. They're going to share how they're making an impact in the world. And hopefully in that, you'll get some tips how you can make an impact being the best version of yourself and how you can live every day of your life as a thriving entrepreneur. I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm looking forward to bringing these folks to you and to spending some time with you here on the radio today as we talk about human impact. With that said, let's jump right in to our very first guest. Join me in welcoming Vanessa Donaldson. Hey, Vanessa, how you doing? Hey, Steve, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me today. Absolutely. So start off telling us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Oh, wow. Well, a little about me in a loaded question. I am a military spouse, been married for 27 plus years to my Marine, and we are on the retirement side now. So we've been moving all over the world, raised our family in the military, and now we are in a season of just exploring new things and enjoying retirement. So I coach military spouses in that process. I have a, a group coaching program with empowerment and encouragement, motivation. You know, there's a lot of us out there around the world and we're kind of missing our online, our base in person. So I've created like an online base space. We're used to, you know, running next door to look for a, an extra egg if you're cooking or, hey, can I grab some cheese out of your fridge? And the husbands are deployed and it's a lot of moms and kids running around. And then you kind of, you're kind of, you know, it's, it's the, it's like a double-edged sword when you're in the moment, you're like, I can't believe this is my life. Where's my husband? Oh my gosh. And then when you're out of it, you kind of miss some parts of that. So I am there to kind of empower military spouses. I help them bloom wherever they're planted in their season after retirement and um, help them with whatever they're launching, whatever they're doing, whatever their new, why is their new living purpose in the world is. So that's how I'm showing up. Mm, I love that. Um, you know, your life beyond the military seems like uh, something that is so, it's like this promise of something that kind of never happens, if you know what I mean. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, yeah, you're laughing, but it's kind of a sad thing. Yeah. I don't want promises not to happen. I want people to be living their best lives and thriving on whatever season they're in. So yeah, it, it is kind of like a dream out there, but I want people to find their dream and I'm there to hold their hand with it. You know, some people think it's so far off or I can never do that or wherever we go, we hear so much. Oh, I wish I had done that. Oh, I wish, gosh, I wish I had joined the Peace Corps. Yeah, I thought about that when I was in my twenties. Well, I did that. I went to Africa, you know, found my Marine husband there too, which was a bonus. <laughs> 
Or, you know, I, I've thought about doing the van life, but, you know, I just don't know. That sounds really fun. I wish I could just go off and work remotely. And it's like, people are doing this. You can do it. So I'm here to help you with that process. <laughs> oh, I totally love that. And I was also, and I guess that's maybe more why I laughed, is I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, you refer to your husband as your Marine. You know, I mean, he's technically not active duty. Um, and in fact, <laughs> if I remember correctly from what you told me, he's not even a reservist. You know, he's quote unquote retired, but that makes him no less a Marine than he was when he was in his twenties. I mean, hopefully he's taking a few less uh, uh, long runs these days, but but other than that, you know, I mean, it, it just is who everybody yeah. that I've ever met in the military always is for the rest of their life. Yeah, it's so true. I don't know how else to address him. It's just like part of his name. It's just my Marine, you know? Yeah, maybe I'm a little selfish possessive. He's my Marine. You know, the military can't have him anymore. You know, for 20 something years, I was the mistress. That's kind of, we joked about it, you know, like, okay, where's the Marine Corps sending you now? What do we need to do? And I'm just kind of toting along with the kids. All right. In the background, getting it, getting it together. And now we don't have the military doing all that. So he is all my Marine. <laughs> I love it. Well, and, and the flip side to it is, is that, um, you know, for the wives that you work with, um, there's that whole element of, you know, your Marine, you know, I mean, he's out, but he's still kind of there. Um, and, you know, again, you're talking about that dream that sometimes never becomes a reality. You dream all those years on base of someday he's going to be out and he's going to be all mine. And then, mm. you know, he kind of isn't, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yes, yes. And there's a transition there. That's why I'm a transitional coach, too. So you want them all to yourself, and then they do get out, and there's a lot of transition there. When you've been used to kind of running the household on your own, making all those executive decisions, helping pay the bills, maybe doing moves on your own, all kinds of stuff, setting up the kids in school, and then he's there, and he wants to be a part of it. And and for some wives, it's a little harder transition than others because it's like, oh, my gosh, he's in my space now. You know, can't he just get out and get a job? I mean, uh, my husband retired when my kids were in high school, middle school and high school. And I remember they'd come home and they'd ask me every day, mom, is dad going to work again somewhere? Is he going to leave the house? Like they were really worried because there was no latchkey kids at our house. I mean, they came home and dad was right there. What you want for lunch? What you want for afternoon snack? How was your day? And they're like, oh. when you have teenagers and they're like, really, this is just a nightmare. I've got to come home every day and face this guy. So they kind of grew out with this absent parent thing too, for a while. So, and I went to work full time for a while. So I was kind of like, you know what, I'm going to go play in the corporate world. And for me, it was kind of like getting dressed up and going out, having fun because I could, you know, put on my clothes and drive down the freeway and go help and do project planning and run a bunch of other stuff outside the home. And my husband got to play all the, you know, stay home daddy stuff. So it was, it was a transition. It was, it was different. And then we kind of ended up working together. I got laid off from my job and we started our boating ministry, taking out injured veterans with PTSD, you know, out of uh, Camp Pendleton, Marine Corps base. That's where we were stationed. So all around the Southern coast there. And we found a new groove. We found a groove to be in each other's space, welcome each other's space. And then I recently wrote an article actually for uh, a military spouse magazine was at Stars and Stripes. And it was 
the importance of having alone time in a healthy military marriage. So it gets to the point where you're kind of distant apart from each other so much. And then all of a sudden you're together 24 seven and especially doing the van life and our lifestyle, we are together a lot. So there is some importance to having alone time, creating your own space to have your own little personal projects and things you're, you know, wanting to do and dreaming of that might not encompass, you know, my husband, I'd love to fish and do the boating and get out there and catch me my Wahoo or my, you know, tuna or whatever, but I don't need to do it almost every day and for him it's therapy and he's like if he's not fishing he's looking at a fishing show he's working on his lures and I'm like I have some other things that Vanessa might want to work on so finding that balance it's it's all part of the transition no I absolutely love that and I love this story you know because usually it's about the wife asking him when he's going to get to work but I love the story being that the, the teens were like okay dad here's the wanted you know go go find a job you know go do something <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a a question every vet has to ask when they get out. Am I, do I, have I set myself up for success that I need to uh, work still, work a part-time job, work a full-time job? Maybe I just want to get out of the house and be more social. Maybe it's a social thing. A lot of them are running around Lowe's and Home Depot or whatever, just, you know, doing something socially. Or is it like a mandatory thing because we need to pay the bills or do I not need to do that at all? And can I spend my time just working on my passion and my dreams and making up for all that lost time that I didn't have in the military. So for him, yeah, that was one of the first questions, you know, are you planning to work or not? Or how, how's this looking with our finances? And he's like, I will never put on a suit and tie and go say yes, sir, to anybody else in my life ever again. And I was like, okay, I think he's done. No. So we do our own things. We do, you know, our boating ministry and we're property managers for Airbnb, our own Airbnbs and stuff like that. So we find time to definitely fill the space. We're not living in nursing homes yet. So that word retirement, it's kind of really heavy too. And I haven't looked at the history of the, the language in Latin or anything, but, you know, it's, we're not in complete retirement. We're in our fifties. We're still out there. We got a lot to do and we want to you know, share with our knowledge with others and, sh and and invest in our family and our and our legacy and all that stuff. So by all means, yeah, retirement is, I don't know if it's even the right word. I should be promoting all the time. It's just the next season, but but not quite in the, you know, the the nursing home season or where we're completely being taken care of by our children. So we gotta we gotta use this opportunity and keep moving while we can. So talk to us a little bit about some of the unique challenges that a military spouse um, goes through when their Marine, uh, you know, is finally gets to be theirs. Oh, gosh, the, the transition. It's uh, a lot of unknown. It's a lot of questioning internally, a lot of kind of scarcity of, and, and I want to help coach women through this too, like don't look at it as the scarcity side, but looking at it as an abundance side of what else is on the other side that's more positive. Because at first you're thinking, you know, we've kind of been all kind of crutched and crippled because the military has really told us where to go, what to do. Like so much of it is programmed. All of a sudden it's a blank slate. You're waking up and nobody's telling you what to do, where to go, what to wear. Not, none of that. It's, it's completely a blank slate. So there's a lot of, um, just unknown and maybe feeling stuck, like, oh my gosh, like what, what are we going to do? And, and we got to move off the base. If you're on a base, talk to those ladies, like they're packing, they got to figure out where to move off base. If you're not owning a home off base, you're, like we got to set up that housing for the next active duty Marine or, or military person coming in. So a lot of um, just sitting and, and questioning, having 
pondering thoughts with each other. I would say communication is huge. There's probably a lot of families or couples that either can grow closer or grow further apart in that season too, because if you've been living worlds apart all those years and um, all of a sudden you're together, it, it could put a strain on the marriage to the point of you know, separation or divorce. For us, our faith was huge. It's, it's, it's our foundation. We're Christians and I know you're a pastor, so you can relate to that. So where do I run to? The Bible. I run to prayer. I run to the church. So that's that's always my first step, especially when I'm feeling worried, anxious, confused about something. And uh, then we just kind of let God lead and leave it up, leave it up to him and just kind of, you know, take those steps. So having that communication, open communication, figuring out if you're going to stay in the same state, what ages are your kids? Like if they're still in middle school or high school, sometimes you, you might want your kid to be able to go to one school for two or three years with having, without having to move, buy new friends and all that stuff. So for us, it worked out that, you know, both our kids could graduate from the same high school. And uh, we decided to stay there because we were just starting this whole boating ministry thing. So but a lot of questions, a lot of communication, a lot of figuring out where to go, a lot of figuring out on the finances, you know, the the mortgage or where you're going to live. Are you going to rent? Are you going to own? So all those transitional questions, which is why I'm, I'm two steps ahead of the ladies that are maybe just in that season to alleviate some of that confusion for them. Let's talk for just a moment about some of the more difficult kind of things that especially a military spouse, you know, there can be um a lot of pain that comes with it you know whether it be horrible things like infidelity or even just you know there's a lot that he either doesn't or can't or never learned how to or all of the above <laughs> share with you you know um and there can be i mean especially when you're talking about a career person you know there can be a lot of real resentment and stuff how does a person even begin to really actually deal with that and come find healing over it mm, yeah the the tough stuff like the the ps ptsd and, and the stuff that maybe you watch your spouse kind of transition i've seen this in clients they they're not the same person they were 20 something years ago you know when we're dating and and then falling in love and the marriage and all that and then over time every deployment compounded one after another it it's going to wear on you and they're these these military guys are just um trained to just you know suck it up don't show any emotion and move on you know, and if you're sick and you're physically in pain take a motrin like <laughs> that's their medicine you know now they've gone a little overboard the other way but that's a whole other conversation with the va and pumping out pills and getting people on meds and all that stuff so that's why we do the boating ministry to do ocean therapy nature tools, you know, to get out there and breathe fresh air and, and do something tactile uh, that can that can be a healthy alternative and, and holistic alternative to medication. Not saying, you know, nobody should be on it, but there's a line of when you should be on it and when, you you know, it gets to the point you shouldn't be on it. And next thing you've got a, an, an addicted vet that could, it could have gone a different way. So that's a painful thing when just dealing with their their physical ailments as they're aging um, their bodies kind of break down after they get out. They literally told us this as the spouses were leaving the military, like, watch out, watch your husband in the next year or so. You know, he's been on a rigorous training routine for the last 20 something years. 
his body is going to start to wear down because he's not going to be getting up at five or six and doing those runs. He's not going to be hiking up Camp Pendleton, Marine Corps base mountaintops, you know, with um, a pack leading the pack with the, the boots and the new guys in the back at school of infantry. He was there too. So, and it, it sure happens. I've talked to so many other military spouses like, Oh my gosh, my husband just tore his bicep. My husband, you know, the foot fracture, like stuff just comes out of places and it's like, the body is starting to break down a little. So yeah, we have to maintain um, healthy lifestyle movement and all that, but the body will start to break down after they're out. So, uh, and then emotionally, yeah, it's, it's a real struggle. And that's, that's why I'm so passionate too, with helping these vets. I've been trained with uh, positive intelligence. So it's a whole mindset and a toolbox, not only the nature tools with ocean therapy and all that, but also not listening to the lies inside your head, the whole mindset shift of changing the neurological path. So when you have that knee jerk reaction that you're triggered by something, which, you know, trigger is a big word for military guys that can get triggered by a lot of stuff. You don't jump into reacting straight away and, you know, going down this negative path of reacting, maybe making the situation worse. I think I read an article, something about, you know, uh, some lawyer advertising for for military that end up in jail. I'm like, oh my gosh, we have to have specialty lawyers for this because it's a great guy, but he had a a, a bad moment of a bad behavior, bad judgment. And next thing he's in jail. We don't want that to happen to our guys either. So learning how to process your emotions, be aware of them more, which is something they don't do in the military. I think that's why there's a lot of organizations even that do yoga for military now, all kinds of breath work, very different type of um, emotions to, just to get you actually to start to feel and see and feel your heart pound and stuff, not just have this surface go, go, and everything's in a box and don't think about the emotional side. So if you can start to access that more in, in yourself and um, realize there's tools out there, there's people to help, there's resources so that you don't have to always go from this trigger to this negative reaction. And then you can learn to actually not enjoy it, but see it as a gift and an opportunity a little more than a challenge. It's a more positive word, a gift and an opportunity to overcome and to get out of that funk so that you can get on with your life and get unstuck, I say. Get un get unstuck with your life so you can live. So that's that's the the positive intelligence side of things. And and that's a that's a big tool. I've been in some coaching groups that meet weekly with vets. I'm trying to think. No, I don't think I've seen you on there. But um maybe you have gone. I can't remember. There's it's a big group and we come and go in that space. But vets can show up there too and just be comfortable being a safe space and say like, you know, some of them are working and they're like, Hey, I blew up at my boss today. Oh my gosh. He told me to do this thing. And it just triggered me. And, and we're all there. There's coaches in that space to walk, walk that vet through the scenario. Like, okay, this is what happened. How, how are we going to handle this next time? What would you do differently? And so, yeah, that's all part of why I'm so passionate about the coaching. I don't want these vets to be running around anxious and triggered and like mad at the world you know, just make peace with things and get on with your life. I love it. Well, give us the URL or whatever where we can contact with you if, uh, if a person would like to go deeper with you on this. Oh, yes, yes. The website, which actually I forgot to even mention <laughs> this this book that I'm promoting too. So I love you because I love me because it's actually um, a collaborative coffee table interactive book. And I say like three-dimensional interactive because it's not only words, it has pictures as well and QR codes. So you can actually hold your phone on there and uh, go to an audio or a video of the author expanding on their work. So the reason I love, the reason I'm a part of this 
this whole collaboration is I love me because again, like anything, if we're not loving ourselves first and expressing why we love ourselves, it's going to be hard to love anything around us. So that was really powerful. That caught my attention. I said, I want to be a part of this project. And and then I love you is what you love about either another person, place, or thing. It could be a pet. It could be all kinds of things. So for my story, it kind of summarizes. You've got some tidbits already, uh, but it's my love story with my Marine. My Marine, <laughs> I say it again. I didn't put that language in the book, but all about um, how I met him, you know, in Africa. And it's just a little highlight. And, you know, like navigating the military uh, lifestyle, I call it from Birkenstocks to babies to back end battlefield to boondocking and blissful retirement. I was just stuck on bees that day I was writing. So, yeah, it's it's a love story. And there's other stories in here that you can resonate with, with people overcoming all kinds of trauma, physical abuse, trauma, mental. So it's a book on love. And we've already had um, it's been in an art commission in um Whereas in New Jersey, just yesterday, they had a whole art show and on the theme of love and artists came in and had different poetry and pictures on the walls and books and all about the theme of love. And so we're going to have more, more interactive engagements like that. Um, but really, we just want to promote love because there's so much negativity in the world these days. And people even talk a little about the political tension. Like we just want to all unite somehow, find balance, find a middle ground and promote love. And the more negativity the negativity there is in the world, I'm feeling, and I think I was reading some scripture, scripture on this as well, to pull into the positive side. Like it's the only way to combat evil, right? Evil and good, the spiritual world, like you have to push the positive. So this is one more way to push the positive by promoting love, loving acts, um, loving stories. So yep, that's the book. And everything can be uh, linked to me at my website, which is resetwithvanessa.com. So reset, R-E-S-E-T, because I'm kind of the reset coach. I'm helping people reset in a certain season of life with W-I-T-H, Vanessa is the traditional way spelled V-A-N-E-S-S-A, dot com reset with vanessa.com it's amazing well vanessa thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today thank you so much for having me steve god bless you all bye <laughs> more than anything we are so grateful for our military people who have served so that we can be safe and free here in america and i'm so grateful for their service but also for the impact that they make and we hope in any way that we can make that impact to help them be able to share who they are and make the difference that they've continue making in the world. Let's jump right in to our next guest when we talk about human impact and how you can use it to be a thriving entrepreneur. Join me in welcoming Allison McNair. Hey, Allison, how are you doing today? I am wonderful, Steve. Thanks so much for asking and thanks so much for having me on today. I'm excited about our time together. Yeah, we're excited to have you here with us. So start us off. Tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. So my, as we said, my name is Allison McNair. I am a master's degree holder in business administration. I start out with that because I'm really excited. That's an achievement that I just um, achieved, as well as I have a business uh, bachelor's in political science and um, also fashion merchandising. So from my academic 
uh, resume, if you will, it kind of shows about my mark in the world, where I'm not the type of individual that feels like there's just a certain path for people to follow and certain things for people to do. I think that everyone, given an opportunity, can make an impact in the world. What kind of impacts uh, go through your mind when you think of people making an impact on the world? Well, for me, um, I started a nonprofit called Perfect Inc. And we empower women formerly incarcerated through employment training, employment placement, and then also lifestyle coaching. And for us, that impact starts with those that are considered to be disadvantaged because of choices and mistakes that they've made, and then how they can take that platform or that mistake and then turn it to something else that can actually help someone else, that can lift someone else up. So I think for me, impact is about allowing people the space to grow into what God has called them to be, or the space to grow to be a better version of themselves. A lot of people, you know, they struggle even with the concept of who am I, let alone to be able to then become the better version of themselves. So where do we kind of start on this journey of becoming a better version of ourselves? You know, generally speaking, I, I agree with you 100% that there are a lot of people because there are so many things um, in our society society today or our culture that can kind of pull you left, pull you right. And it's kind of hard to cut through all of that noise to find out what am I supposed to be doing or what is, like you said, the best version of myself. And I always encourage people to start with an intake of those that you hold dear. Ask your friends, and I mean like real friends, those that care about you, those that love you, your family members, ask them, hey, what do you notice about me? What do you think I'm really, really great at? And because those are the things that I think that we're not looking to put on a resume, we're not looking to use to kind of impress someone else, but it's the things that are innately things that we enjoy, innately things that we are just good at. And I think that it's our friends and our family members that can point those things out. And I think that once you're able to locate yourself from that little assessment with friends and family, I think that that's a great starting place to find out what is the best version of me. One question I like to always ask people um, when they're doing this um, exercise that I've created and they're reflecting is, when am I most happy? When am I most enjoying myself, either when I'm alone or with when I'm with friends? And when you ask that question, I think it opens the door of just that self-discovery. I love that so much. I've often said that if you really want to know who you are, uh, take a look when you're saying something very passionately at your mm -hmm. at the look in your children's eyes. And if they're rolling their eyes, that's a pretty good indication that that's something you talk about all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. When they go, I've heard that before, mom, or I've heard that before, dad. I think that that's a really great indicator as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, being a better version of ourselves, um, what are some of the reasons, let's talk just kind of selfishly for a little bit. What are some yeah. of the reasons that a person would want to be better than what they are now? I think that one reason is that there's a peace. 
I think that people can find peace or serenity in knowing that I'm not trying to portray or pretend that I'm something that I'm not to impress others. But when they're looking to just be the best that they can be, it's kind of like an insurance of, okay, I've settled the fact that I'm not going to be Tyra Banks, or I'm not going to be Naomi Campbell or like a supermodel, but I'm going to be my best here if I can just eat a plate of vegetables for the day, you know, and it's one thing that also eliminates that comparison. Um, Going back to like my original comment of society and culture having all of these, I think that there's a pushing of a false pretense of you have to be this or you're not really successful or you have to be this or you're not really doing well. But if you can take a step back from everybody else's suggestions and just say, you know what, I'm at my best when I do X, that has to do with you. It doesn't have to do with anybody else. It doesn't have to do with outside influences. It's all about that assurance and that serenity that you can find with you. And I think that comes when you settle on, I'm at my best at X and whatever X is. I think part of that, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. I think part of that is about giving yourself a break to the point where you can really acknowledge, hey, you know, I am good at some things. A lot of us, I think, buy into the concept of we can't say, hey, I'm good at something because somehow that's being a conceited jerk rather than just acknowledging, hey, you know, you do some things good too. Yeah. And, you know, what's so funny is that you find that most of the quote unquote successful people in in American culture are the ones who've identified what they've good, what they're good at. And then it's like success just met them where they were. So, you know, right now I think about someone that I follow and I admire, um, the founder of Spanx, Sarah Blakely. I mean, she was selling copiers or fax machines like I don't know if you're familiar with her story but definitely check it out and she was just like I'm not happy I think I can do this and she went full steam ahead in creating this company Spanx it was an idea and a concept unheard of before and then what I really like about her story is when she did that she then met her husband and then she had kids and it was like all of the things that I'm sure people were telling her you're going after this company you should be finding a man or doing this or doing that she was still able to get everything that she needed to get But by finding her true self or finding that one thing that she was good at, which was marketing and doing it for something that she thought would impact others, which I don't, you probably don't know, but I know Sphinx has definitely impacted a lot. um, She was able to really change the world. And I think that all of us have the capability to change the world. All of us have the capability to impact others on a greater scale, but it just has to be, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to do what's necessary in order to impact someone else? I love that so much. You know, you bring up the concept of copier sales and stuff like that. And a little known lady, um, maybe you've heard of her, her name's Beyonce. Um, (laughs) Her and... uh, you know, that group she used to be in, you know, Destiny's Child. <laughs> I think you've heard of them. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, you know, back in the day 
when they were first on one of the TV, you know, singer searches things, they uh, they actually lost the competition. They went out in the first oh, wow. round. Um, and uh, their dad, it, it was really cool. I got a chance to meet Matthew Knowles, her father. Wow. Um, her dad at the time was the number one salesperson for Xerox worldwide. You know, wow. um, which is impressive in and of itself. And then being an African-American man, even more so um, yeah. number one in the whole world. And he's standing there in the hallway, down the hall from these absolutely devastated uh, teenage girls. Um, yeah. Ed McMahon happened to be the host for it. And he walked by and he, uh, he kind of grabbed Ed McMahon. I mean, not like accosted him, but yeah. <laughs> kind of pulled him off to the side and said, what do I do? You know, how do I help these? Ed McMahon said something so brilliant to him. He said, you know, of all of these competitions, you know, because Ed McMahon had done Star Search and two or three others, plus, you know, being on the Johnny Carson show for years, you know, he said of all of these competitions I've ever seen, he goes, I've never seen the winner really do much of anything, but the people who came in second or eighth or 10th or things like that, he goes, now those people, they have the drive to be able to do something. Matthew was so inspired by that, that he left, you know, that massively successful career, went back, mm -hmm. got his master's degree in music management, um, you know, and we now have Destiny's Child and then later Beyonce and all the other cool things that Matthew's whole entire, you know, music manager company has done because of that moment there in that hallway with those wow. little girls crying, you know, it's pretty cool stuff. That is amazing. I've never heard that story. Um, so that is like amazing to hear. But what I love about it most is that in the self-discovery, right, of finding out who you are and what you're supposed to be doing, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a bed of roses. It's not going to always be smell of flowers and sunshine. There may be some rainy days. There may be some difficult days, but it's how we respond to those difficult times that allows us to kind of dig deeper and find out more of how we can be better and how we can correct and, you know, fulfill those desires that we already have. It's so fun that we're having this discussion today. It's so timely. I actually was on Facebook and somebody posted, you know, what insight do you have now um, that you wish you would have known when you were starting out in your rise, in your success, in your doing what you're doing better. I forget exactly how they worded it. And I said <laughs> in that post, I said, what I wish I could have told myself was to learn from, and this is bible but you know, I'm a third generation minister, so it comes out, yeah. Yeah, I, was <laughs> to learn from the story of Joseph that wow. becoming the ruler that path led through the dungeon. And so wow. your course doesn't necessarily um, just always have roses and beautiful things every step of the way. Um, but that doesn't make it any more, any, any less wonderful because of those horrible times that you do go through. Um, and I think that's really important when we talk about purpose, because I think a lot of people think we find this magical purpose thing and then just everything is perfect from then on. You know, I mean, there's never yeah. any problems ever again. Uh, <laughs> So let's... Never any problems, yeah, ever yeah. again. But then more importantly, the one that I 
think about in this moment is the, oh, you're an overnight success. And it's like, dude, I've been back in the trenches for the last 15 years. There was nothing overnight about this process. It's, it's, that's what it is. It's a process. And you got to learn how to enjoy the process or be content while you're in the process. Mm, I love that so much. That's really, really good stuff, Allison. So let's talk a little bit more. Um, let's talk some practical things. What is something that somebody listening today could do to really put their feet on the path towards uh, fulfilling and living out their purpose? I think, um, you know, I I think practically you got to have self-reflection. Take 10 minutes. And I don't even want to say like five minutes because five minutes is a blink of an eye, right? But take 10 minutes a day, sit down without a TV, without a phone, um, just find someplace quiet and take 10 minutes a day and just write down things that you think are important to you. 10 minutes a day, just writing. It doesn't have to go anywhere. It doesn't have to make sense. It's just you, your pen, and your journal, writing down what matters to me. And after you do this, you're going to go through it. When you start your next 10 days, 10 minutes, or your next day, and you're doing your next 10-minute session, read what you wrote the previous time. And it's okay to cross out and say, you know what? I really thought about that. I don't like cooking. Yeah, I mean, I'm supposed to do it. This is just an example. I'm supposed to do it, but I don't really like it. It's okay to cross it out. And after you do this for 45 days, identify, okay, what did I keep writing over and over again? What did I keep coming back to? And then once you do that, I think step two would be, okay, how can I incorporate this either into an idea where I can assist others, or how can I incorporate it into an idea that will allow me to maybe be self-sufficient where I don't have to work 40 hours anymore. Whatever, you, wherever you are in life and whatever you're trying to do, after that 45 days of identifying what matters to you and what truly, truly matters to you, figuring out how can I incorporate this? And then that's another 45 days or six months. And then I think the third step is after you kind of figure it out, then this is what I've learned um, in my business classes is you take a sample a data. You talk to your, um, you gather some data. You talk to your friends. You talk to some family members. You express to them what you think matters to you. Here are some of your ideas and get their feedback. If you say, oh my gosh, you know what? What really matters to me is baking pies and I'm going to take my pies and I'm going to give it to a homeless shelter and so forth and so on. And you run it by your family and they say, hey, I've tasted your pies. They're not that good. Don't get offended. But then go back to step one and say, okay, well, why do I really like pies? Maybe it's not for me to bake pies, but maybe I can start a program where homeless people can come in and I supply what's needed to bake pies and they can bake pies as a stress reliever or as food for them to have. So I think that those would be the, that would be the practical steps I would have. One, that's self-reflection. Step two, the idea that connects with what matters most to you, that idea that can impact others. And then three, taking a data sample from friends and family members to see if what you've jotted down is what you're reflecting in your current environment. 
And if I can add a two and a half or a three onto that. I love it. Come with it. Love you and be flexible because the very thing that you're probably the best at is the thing that you do so well that you wouldn't even think about it. And you assume everybody must know how to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. I love that. Allison, let's do a course together. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us how we can work with you, um, how they can contact you. Um, well, once again, I am the founder of Perfect Inc., a nonprofit that helps women formerly incarcerated. Uh, I can be found um, on social media at Perfect Inc., P-E-R-F-E-C-T-I-N-C, uh, 129 on Instagram, Facebook, um, as well as LinkedIn. We also have a website that you can comment, drop notes, um, encouraging notes, no bad stuff. We're just going to trash it because we only got a positive space going on there. Uh, but you can visit our website at perfectinc, P-E-R-F-E-C-T-I-N-C dot org. That's so awesome. I hope a whole bunch of people will reach out to you both to work with you as well as recommend people to you that can work with you. Allison, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Thank you for having me. This was great. How are you going to make an impact in the world? How are you going to impact everyone you come in contact with in a positive way? And that's important, isn't it? That we make that positive impact on the people we come in contact with every minute, every day, so that we can make an impact on their lives and we can live our life as a thriving entrepreneur. Think about that. And we're going to jump right in to our next guest as we're talking about human impact here on Thriving Entrepreneur. Here we go. Join me in welcoming Chuck Rinker. Hey, Chuck, how are you doing today? Great, great. Doing great myself. How about yourself, Steve? I'm doing really good. Thanks for asking. So start us off. Tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. That's a um, pretty broad question. I went from cattle farmer to AI expert in, in my career. So I grew up a cattle farmer, got into early gaming when gaming was red blips on a screen and realized the power of engagement for that and kind of developed a passion for all things interactive and um, pretty much spent a whole career through simulation and gaming and got from game development. And then um, after a short stint of uh, uh, battles with cancer for, with my wife and myself, we decided that there was a bigger purpose for human engagement. So we started um, um, pushing our uh, human engagement platform into the healthcare sectors and specifically in hospitals and patient experience and helping patients navigate the, uh, the complex world of healthcare. Oh, I love that. And so did I understand correctly that you're combining that with some AI related things to help people in those areas? Yes. What we found is that AI has this incredible power to scale, to scale productivity, to scale technology, as we all know. And it's in the news every 15 minutes, you see something else out there. Um, so we basically took the power of engagement and humanized it. So as an ex-director for the EA Sports franchise for Madden and NCAA and some previous game work I'd done and early training, simulation training work I'd done, we always found out that, you know, AI is not as new as people think. I've been doing AI since the 80s and 90s before we even called it AI. Mm 
um, at least publicly. So there's always been an incredible power to communicate at a human level. We've just now progressed to the level um, of technology that we can kind of blur that line between natural communication and technology. Um, some of our competitors are out there doing really ultra photorealistic, and I'll call them almost creepy. There's a term called uncanny valley. But think about the engagement level that you get, you know, somewhere between the Disney and the uh, 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 um, entertainment world, you get these characters and avatars that we all know and love and it's amazing how much people trust how much they engage with them and how much they relate from a cultural and language barrier so our characters speak 128 languages we have members of the deaf community on staff that have helped us teach our characters to sign so it's really about how do you scale the power of ai how do you scale the power of technology but instead of teaching humans how to use that technology. We're teaching technology how to communicate as humans. That's what it really boils down to. Mm -hmm. I love that. So when we think specifically in the healthcare industry, I mean, there's so many directions you could take with it. Is there a specific angle that you guys are focused on? There is, there is, of course, like all, all good startups and small companies, our visions of world domination have more use cases than we have the capabilities of implementing. However, it's a great question because we're really taking the walk, don't run approach. There's a lot of great cases in AI that people are spending just uh, astronomical amounts of funding. But we so stood back and said, what are those common everyday challenges that we as patients, so we're very patient centric, not that our healthcare uh, professionals, HCPs, and frontline workers aren't overworked and overburdened, but at the end of the day, um, healthcare is about the patients. So we really take the approach of having our characters relatable and being almost that patient advocate. A couple of specific use cases. Um, the one that's getting some early popular traction is just when you walk into a large hospital and you need to know where to go, how to get there, how to get a, a quick cup, a cup of coffee. I need to know how much parking is. Is there a local steak shop? Oh, my kid got uh, admitted. I need to stay overnight. Just all those things that concierge service does. And often that burden is put onto healthcare staff itself. Um, so we create avatars, concierge services, where you walk into the hospital and we have these AI avatars positioned around the hospital and they can answer those frequently asked questions, not trying to replace humans, but take some of that burden of the repetitive mundane task off that human. Other use cases that I'm pretty proud of are in the clinical trial space. We have a, a gross underrepresentation of underserved communities and minorities that are represented in healthcare and the, I mean, in uh, clinical trials and two of the biggest challenges are getting those to get those patients into the trial. You've got to recruit them, means you got to um, um, reach out to them, you've got to relate to them, you've got to give them a trust factor. Trust is a, um, um, a too far in between uh, uh, from certain minority communities into the clinical trial work. So, how do you develop trust? How do you develop a communication pipeline between those underserved, underrepresented communities and the clinical trial space? So, that clinical recruitment. We've done a fair amount of work in and then in the consent and retention, which is how do you get people through the legal process of what are the pros, what are the cons, what are my risks, what are my rewards, and to keep people engaged over long periods of time. Gaming technology, we know, keeps, keeps people in front of their computers, in front of their PlayStations and Nintendos and Xboxes all hours of night. So let's keep people that engaged in their healthcare journey. And that, that's really what, kind of where we're focusing our, our early use cases in. Oh, I love that. Now, if you can just create the angry birds of wanting to go see the doctor, you will have the absolute 
you know what home run of the world <laughs> you are absolutely right now I, I can't say we're going to make it fun to go to the doctor but our goal is to make it a little less taxing a little less anxious a little less burdensome a little less painful so so it's really about easing that tension of being a patient and helping a patient navigate our complex healthcare systems um especially in the uk the uk has some unique challenges with their uh uh payer single payer system and then there are cultural differences and language barriers so we're finding that we're getting a, a fair amount of interest and intrigue and um i'm pushing a couple of early pilots and uh programs out through some of the healthcare systems in the uk as well and trying to address their communications and cultural challenges at the same time wow i really love that my mind is just spinning with all of the concepts of all of those kind of things you can do so maybe the easiest question though is all right your ai concierge when you walk into the in the hospital because you're right i mean they're just unless you've been there you know for the yep. last six months every day which I'm sorry for those of us that have gone through that, but um, other than that, you know, you just don't even have any idea where to go. And most of the hospitals have kind of gotten rid of a reception counter for the most part these days. So how do you do an AI concierge that isn't kind of creepy and doesn't freak people out? What are, where is that line between a video that's engaging and friendly and one that's just kind of weird and creepy? I, I couldn't have asked for a better question if I didn't plant that on you, Steve. And I know we, we just do these impromptu because that's one of the number one questions we get is, oh, you're just trying to replace humans. These people are creepy. These things just are your, you know, pe- people are just, um, they watch too many Hollywood Hollywood movies. Um, but there's a, actually an interesting clinical trial that we quote quite a bit where when a character's too photorealistic, too human-like, I call it the horse, you know, the horror movie uh, scenario where your head turns a little too far or their face is just a little out of proportion or the, the joints are moving a little farther than they should. That's called the uncanny valley. I actually first learned that piece from uh, John Snotty, a, a VP of uh, Disney Animation uh, years ago when we were first trying to push this into the marketplace and get some traction. And we tried to go the, hey, people want to relate to someone that looks like them and acts like them. And be, no, they don't. That's why Facebook, uh, the metaverse, what's why uh, avatars are so popular. That's why you create your 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 your, your, your me's and your, your Wii game fit um, um, games and such. So the fine line is actually in this clinical trial did a quick study and showed a human, a live human, a photorealistic human, a semi-photorealistic human, I'll call it the Disney Plus, halfway between the Disney and the uh, you know, Princess Leia characters, which is where we lie now. And then the um, very rudimentary, this, the stick figures and the icons and the emoticon looking characters. And they found this interesting curve of trust and, and approachability and empathy. And too photorealistic was creepy. Humans even rated lower than the semi-photorealistic characters like we create. And it was interesting to dig into the research and some of the theories behind it. Can't claim it's been proven this way, but um, the clinical trial um, participants and assistants that were working on these trials are uh, hypothesizing at least that um, there's a stigma. We as um, humans don't like to be judged and we get judged by the humans. So these avatars that we create not only are more approachable and empathetic and have infinite patience. And, you know, what other human do you know can speak 148 languages plus American Sign Language and British Sign Language? You're just not going to find those individuals. Um, But it was really intriguing to find that the information they disseminated in these clinical trials um, was actually more accurate 
to the physiology behind that once they tested the individuals and all, then they would give to a, um, um, a, a live human. And um, I, we're doing a current trial that kind of brings that point to a head where we're checking on the impact of um, opioid addicted mothers, young mothers on the babies. What, what is the impact of quality of life and, and, and long-term quality of life for the infants born to opioid addicted young mothers and a lot of them are from minority communities so if you have your camera if your audience saw me on camera i'm your uh, um, um typical 57 year old gray-haired white guy and if you're talking to a underserved minority female population who has um, for whatever their circumstances are become addicted to opioids and has had babies out of wedlock while they're addicted to a certain opioid painkiller um they really don't want to be judged by me, quite honestly. And so to give them a, um, a more empathetic, culturally sensitive um, avatar that is more relatable, more approachable than myself, um, tends to put them at comfort and get, get better uh, data for the uh, uh, clinicians as well. So for the folks that are listening, you know, because they love to get involved, especially in stuff like this, what are some of the kind of ways that the average listener um, can get involved with what you're doing at the stage you're at right now? Um, I'll, I'll politely give you the same plea I give to every podcast. I tend to, um, I, I have a passion for this. I stand on my soapbox quite often. And then um, a lot of the byproduct is uh, people trying to sell me their, you know, offshore development services, <laughs> please don't contact me for that. But LinkedIn is really where I really love to do business and correspond. I find some pretty amazing minds out there. So if you look up a, a Chuck Rinker, Charles Rinker under um, personas, P-R-S-O-N-A-S on LinkedIn, and you have an idea, a concept, a collaboration, a thought, ooh, how can this work for us? Um, I, I'd be happy um, to engage on, on LinkedIn. Otherwise, if you just want some background information, um, our current push and passion is in the healthcare sector. So we do have a product line based on our digital personalities called iHealth Assist, just like it sounds, I, the letter I, uh, health, A-S-S-I-S-S-T, iHealth Assist, um, I-S-T, I'm sorry, got to work on my spelling, um, iHealthAssist.com, and they can get a couple of use cases and backgrounds on how we're using these with uh, uh, patient experience and patient satisfaction improvements. <clears throat> Even as you're talking and remind me after we're done with the interview, I have somebody I need to introduce you to because the two Wonderful. of you, what you're doing are such a great synergy. But um, let's talk just a little bit here for the last few uh, few minutes about the healthcare system itself. Um, what are the things that are missing that we really do need um, in the healthcare system in order to really, truly address the needs of the people that aren't being served? I know that's There's, a huge question, but can you answer a couple little points? Uh, I can give you my perspective. Um, and there's some interesting articles that Gardner just released <clears throat> on that very question. You know, what are CIOs and what are technologists within healthcare looking for? And um, it's a slightly different answer for U.S. versus U.K. healthcare systems. I'll speak to U.S. healthcare um, initially, that's where I have most experience. <clears throat> but um, in the U.S., we obviously have a choice. Um, I go to MD Anderson every year to follow up with my cancer treatments and such. So I can, I'm, I'm a North Carolinian for those who don't know. So I, I can choose to go where I went when I want, as long as my insurance covers it or I'm willing to pay for it. So in the U.S., it's, it's almost like, almost, it sounds horrible, but it's almost like being in the retail sector. So the problems we're really trying to address 
is the patient recruitment, patient tension, I mean, patient retention, patient satisfaction. <clears throat> How satisfied is a patient with their healthcare system? And those patients that tend to be the most satisfied with their healthcare system are those that, are, that felt they're being heard. They're not being pushed aside. They're not being overlooked. So um, um, combine that with a um, pandemic level version of uh, healthcare professionals, physicians, nurses, clinicians, uh, nurse practitioners that are leaving the practice because of the burdens and the, uh, the, the, the responsibilities, obligations, and um, um, work environments are, are, are much more stressful and the compensation is not living up to it. So we do have a little bit of an exodus going on. So when you look at the healthcare professionals that need the help to be able to serve those patients and to provide that um, personalized individual um patient information, patient engagement that only humans can. You know, our characters are great. They're wonderful. I'll tell them all day long. But at the end of the day, they're not human. They don't have that cognitive thinking as detailed as we do. They don't have the creativity that we have. So if you think about the two things I just mentioned, how do you keep patients happy? How do you keep them satisfied? How do you give them the information they want? And how do you do that? And at the same time, relieve the burden on your healthcare professionals. And that would be to create a human engagement, a human level experience that provides that repeatable, um, I'll call it the more mundane challenges of our healthcare professionals. So that, that's how we're addressing it in the US. The UK does have a slightly different um, um, perspective and I by no means claim to be a healthcare expert in the UK, but we've done enough there to hear the patient experience teams and the patient liaison teams and the uh, 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 IT departments that are struggling over there with their own uh, um, exodus and their own healthcare system not keeping up. They're typically more on the single payer system. They're not as driven by um, the commercial success like we are. Um, if I say it that way, that's probably the wrong term. Um, but they are driven by a, a, a massively larger responsibility for uh, multilingual support, cultural diversity, um, dealing with um, um, a, a different set of patient satisfaction problems and doing that with a healthcare system that I dare say is even more stressed from a staffing requirement than we are in the U.S. So, so they're at uh, pre-pandemic, um, um, or I'll call it pandemic levels of, of stressing out the healthcare professionals. So um, the language barriers are, are a little different and the payer system is a little different on the motivational front, but, but definitely their own set of challenges. And hopefully in either case, we can, we can offer a great benefit to the uh, hospitals and healthcare practices out there. Well, Chuck, that is amazing. I love some of the stuff you're doing and it's got my brain spinning. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you're doing and thanks for being here on the show today. Absolutely, Steve. I'm, I sincerely appreciate it. Those of you that know me know that I am really loving AI and the things that it can do to help us do what we're meant to do more powerfully in the world. I'm not one of those people that's really worried about AI coming and taking over the world or replacing. There will be some jobs that it will displace people and they will find other things to do. And I feel bad for anybody that's displaced. I know some folks that have had that, but I'm really excited about our ability to be able to use it to engage more one-on-one, -on -one, human to human, and make that human impact that AI may aid in, but it'll never take the place of. Because you, you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose, and the world needs 
you. We need you to make that human impact, to do the thing that only you can do in this world, maximizing while it's called today, and living as a thriving entrepreneur. Thanks for joining us. I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. Hi, my name is Steve Kidd. I am a third-generation minister, an international best-selling author of multiple books, and I help people write, publish, and market their books to bestseller. In fact, there are literally thousands of people that have used the system that I created to be able to write, publish, and market their books, and now they're best-selling authors, and you're next. I just wanted to come on for a minute, say hi to you, tell you a little bit about me, introduce myself, and tell you... I know the world is waiting on your message, and I would be so honored to be part of sharing your message with the world. Go to AskSteveKid.com and schedule a time to talk today.